from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. We're going to take the next hour to listen back to a recent conversation I had with St. Louis native Ariva Martin. Her new book is Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. Ariva Martin is a Harvard Law School graduate, a civil rights attorney, a CNN legal analyst, and an entrepreneur. She also founded the Los Angeles-based law firm Martin & Martin LLP, the autism nonprofit Special Needs Network, and the health technology company Butterfly Health, Inc. This November, I had the chance to talk with Ariva here at St. Louis Public Radio before a live audience. Her book, Awakening, details the awakening she had and the one she says we all need to have. So I started our conversation by asking her to take us back to when she had her awakening, around the time she graduated from Harvard Law School. And it was at that point that I started to realize that despite the hard work that I had done, despite the credentials uh, and you know the accomplishments that I had as, as a law student, that there was something else in the workplace that was not about me and not about the work that I did, not about the credentials or the expertise that I had, but it was really about the system and a structure that was set up that I didn't have a lot of control over. So that was when I started to think about these issues, and they really became crystallized for me uh, as I navigated my career. And then more recently, as we all went through this pandemic, had time to reflect, uh, saw this country respond to the murder of George Floyd, uh, start to have these uncomfortable conversations about structural and systemic racism. Uh, and I saw so many parallels uh, between what happens to women as what we know happened to people of color oftentimes, particularly people, uh, you know, of Afri African-American people in particular. So I want to go back a little bit on your story because I feel like it's important to understand where you came from to this awakening and, and what ended up happening in your life that, that brought this home for you. You grew up right here in St. Louis. Yes, I grew up in Car Square Village Car Square. mostly, and then okay. I lived in the, the uh, Jefferson Cass community uh, before, and then I lived briefly in the Jennings community before I went to college in Chicago. And you wrote that your grandmother and your godmother they kind of gave you this idea that if you worked really hard and if you were a good girl, that that was what it was going to take to sort of rise above what were, were pretty humble beginnings. Yeah, and, and that's one of the first lies. So I did an interview with a friend on a station, and he says, Ariva, this book should be 6,000 pages. Like, you know, you, there are a lot of lies beyond the five that women are told. And yes, this is not meant to be a comprehensive and dispositive list. It's just, you know, the things that were told to me most often. And yes, the hard work. I, I pride myself as a Midwesterner on being a really hard worker. So I'm not suggesting that hard work is not important, but there was a diff there was a, an additional part to that story about hard work that wasn't told to me and I think isn't told to many women and it's those meetings that take place outside of work it's those deals and those contracts and those negotiations and things that are happening while oftentimes women are at the office head down working hard doing the work and and men often are in those closed door you know sessions on the golf courses and those cigar bars in those other places and spaces uh, and so that was the part of it that wasn't told to me, and I think is often not told to many women. And I think about your grandmother. I mean, she must have experienced some things and, and lived through some things in life where she had seen that hard work wasn't enough, but maybe she had hope that for you things would be different? 
Well, I, I think that's true, but I think, you know, as African, growing up as an African-American woman, uh, girl, you know, we in our culture are told, we tell our children, our grandparents tell us we have to be twice as good, we have to work twice as hard, we have to be better. And, and that is, you know, an important part of our culture and our tradition. So, yes, that may have been what she experienced, but also what had been told to her through generations was, work hard, work hard. And so you were twice as good. I mean, you're the girl who went from Carr Square to Harvard Law School. I mean, that's that's tough. Yeah, I don't know if I was the girl that was twice as good. I'll just say I was the girl that had a lot of lucky breaks and definitely worked really hard, uh, took to heart those lessons and tried to apply them and, you know, had some incredible opportunities. So. And then you write in your book, a black woman with Harvard credentials is still a black woman. Yeah. What did that end up meaning in your case? That means that no matter how successful you are, and I told this to the, the seniors and juniors that I talked to this afternoon at Rosati, that it doesn't matter. We, we hear President Obama talking about being racially profiled. Uh, we watched what happened to uh, First Lady Michelle Obama when she became our First Lady, all the vicious attacks that were directed towards her. So in this country, race matters, and it matters no matter how successful you are. So uh, that's important. That's an important part of the book is talking about that intersectionality between gender and race. And so did you find yourself turned down for jobs that say a white man who went to Harvard, he might have just sailed right in? Oh, absolutely. I found myself being passed over for promotions when I was working in the corporate environment, watching white men uh, you know, be promoted and have opportunities that weren't afforded to me when I started my own practice. And uh, uh, I was doing, uh, getting contracts before I, I really turned my focus to civil rights in my practice. We did a lot of work where we were counsel for co corporations. And I found that I was offered less money uh, for the same contracts that were being offered to my white counterparts. Uh, for more money, and I actually had a, a white woman friend of mine from Harvard tell me she was in-house at one of these big firms, and she said, Ariva, don't accept that fee because that's not what they pay the white lawyers that they hire to do the same work. Mm. They pay them a lot more, and you need to you know, stand your ground and you know, demand that you be paid what they're paying. And did that demand work? I mean, you were no. able to push. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. I didn't get the work. Yeah. No. <laughs> It so doesn't that, always work out that way. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a tough thing. I mean, here yeah. you're given kind of this inside intelligence, like they're not valuing you enough. And so you come in and you come in confident. You've got to value me the way you'd value me if I was a white man or if I was even a, a white woman. And it doesn't work. No. What do you do with that then? Uh, you find other things that do work. I mean, and, and that's a part of, you know, finding your voice and standing up for yourself. It's not always going to work out. It's, you're not... You know, sacrifices were made for us to get where we are. So sometimes this involves some personal sacrifices. And one of the things that uh, I interviewed a lot of women for the book, and people often ask me, what was the recurring theme from the women? And, and that theme that I heard over and over again from women was that they wish when they were in a workplace where they experienced microaggressions or they were passed over or they were just, you know, blatantly discriminated against, many said they just walked away quietly. Mm -hmm. They left. They didn't, you know, file a lawsuit. They didn't make a complaint to HR. They didn't even as much, in some cases, tell their bosses. They just left. 
and they accepted what was given to them. And many regretted that. I would say most of them regretted that. They regretted that they didn't stand their ground, that they didn't speak up. And they recognized that it may not have changed things. They may not have, you know, gotten the promotion. They may not have gotten the raise, uh, but they think it would have made a difference for someone else and created a better pathway for women who were going to, you know, come behind them. And so for you, uh, as you write in the book, you ended up starting your own firm. You basically realized this big corporate law firm, they don't want me. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. It was that your way of of doing what you just said those other women did. You kind of walked away. You didn't fight at that moment. Well, walking away was fighting. Yeah. So I I created, yeah, I, I realized for me it was, I had this opportunity to create my own path where I could hire people myself. I could be an employer. I could choose the kind of work that I did. I can, you know, represent the kind of cases that I wanted to represent. So, you know, fighting comes in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. So that, that for me was the ultimate way of standing up. So I feel like for a lot of women, when there's that point where you don't get the promotion or you're not paid what you're worth, you start thinking, okay, it's me. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not good enough or frankly, the voice I hear in my head sometimes, I'm not likable enough. Um, did you struggle with that yourself, thinking, yeah. you, not realizing these bigger forces that were there? Yeah, absolutely. And now we call that the imposter syndrome, right? And, and women, you know, there are books written about it and, and people go to counseling about the imposter syndrome. Absolutely. I don't think anyone, uh, you know, man or woman who has achieved any level of success in their career hasn't had that moment where they felt like, I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. So, yes, I've experienced those same feelings and thoughts, and and they can be crippling. You hear a lot of women say that that they are absolutely uh, a detriment or uh, an impediment to them, you know, achieving success. So how do you push past that? How do you get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm not just going to stick around here and be undervalued. I'm going to go start my own firm. I believe in me. Yeah, and I don't want to oversimplify that, and I don't want to suggest that every person is in a position to do that. And you, you would ask about, you know, feeling like you're not the right person or you're, you're not good enough. And a part of why I was writing this book, too, is to push back on that narrative. You, you think back to the early 2000s, there were a lot of books written, uh, Lean In, and books that, you know, followed Lean In, which told women that we needed to do more. We needed to work harder. We needed to be more strategic about our careers, take more assignments. And I wanted to shift that narrative because, as we all know, we already, women, we already work so hard. We already do so much. And I wanted the the paradigm to shift so that women would know we are enough. And it's not us. You can't lean into a closed door. Uh, So a part of, I think, making that paradigm shift is, is, you know, accepting that and embracing that. And, you know, having your awakening moment where you realize that it's not you that's the problem. But it's these, you know, uh, cisgender, heteronormative, patriarchal system that has been developed that we are a part of. This hour, we're listening back to my conversation with Ariva Martin. The topic is her new book, Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. 
Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske. This hour, we're listening to my conversation with St. Louis native Ariva Martin. The focus is her new book, Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. In the book, Ariva calls out several lies told to women and the lies women tell themselves. That includes the lie that the system works. It just needs to be tweaked. I asked Ariva about women stuck in a cycle where they realize something isn't working, but they think if they could just fix this thing or the other, it will work out. I asked her how we can move from considering little tweaks to realizing the situation requires a much bigger shift. Well, if we look at what we've done through, you know, over centuries and definitely, you know, decades, we've made little tweaks and and look where we are. Statistically, I, I cite in the book, so... Women are the most educated demographic in the country. Black women in particular are the most educated. We go to college more. We graduate more. But it's not translating. So when you look at Fortune 500 companies, you look at CEOs in the C-suites, there are only 41 women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And of that 41, only three are African-American. So if you do the math, if we're the most educated people in the country, black women in particular, then why isn't there parity? Why don't you see you know, a proportionate number of women in C-suites or in those senior level positions? You know, it, it, the math isn't there. It's not translating. So that is, should be comfort for you that it's not you. Not you. <laughs> it's not yeah. you because you're doing the work, right? They tell us you go to school. That's going to be your ticket to upward mobility. That's how you, you know, you, you gain advancement in the workplace. So we're doing that. We, we've done that. And we're still not seeing the progress in some of those high level positions. So we know it's not you. We know it's not just a tweak. We have this awakening. Now, what do we do with that knowledge? Where can we where can we take this country to get to the point of what you're calling for? Yeah, well, so the book, so it's broken into three parts. And the first part is, is exposing those lies. The second part is, is going through the history of what we've done. And then the third part is celebrating, you know, women who are successful. So I don't want you to think that this is all about the problem because, you know, I'm a solution-oriented person. I think there is a solution for every problem. And so I celebrate those women who, despite the odds, despite the obstacles, are achieving incredible things in their careers. You know, Kamala Harris, our, our vice president, uh, she and I were, you know, met when we were both in college. And so, you know, I've watched her, you know, just soar in terms of her career. So there are so many examples like that in the book that I, I cite. So, you know, the book is, is everybody doesn't have to have the same awakening experience. Mm -hmm. Some people just by acknowledging that what they've been told, you know, was kind of half truth is in and of itself could be enough for that person, right? That's already liberating. Mm -hmm. So they, they've already had a liberating experience. Just to understand, just to understand it. The, the way the world is, that is a victory in and of itself. Yes. Just to say out loud that I'm enough. So that's for some people. Now, others, mm -hmm. you know, it may take the form of uh, you know, getting involved in a cause. It, it may be, you know, writing to your senator now and your congresswoman and saying or man saying pass this human infrastructure bill and make sure that family leave, paid family leave is in the bill. Make sure that, you know, provisions for child care, the universal pre-K and some of those other things that we know are going to, to make a world of difference for women, make sure those things are included in the bill. So, you know, people will have their own awakening experience. 
So I want to talk about one thing that is almost a leitmotif running through this book. It's, it's a theme that sort of just keeps coming up again and again. And that has to do with the Me Too movement. I mean, this was so galvanizing mm-hmm. for so many women. And yet for the women who decided to speak out about this, there was a great personal cost for many of them. And I'm wondering how you think about that calculation of when you have to sort of protect yourself and decide to swallow um, you know, just the terrible things that life puts in front of you versus saying, you know what, I'm going to come out swinging. I'm going to go public with what I know. Yeah, it's not an easy decision. So a lot of the legal work that I do, I've actually represented women who have been sexually harassed, have experienced, you know, sexual, uh, you know, assault, uh, sexual discrimination in the workplace. Uh, and many of them chose to have a conversation with a lawyer, but not file an actual lawsuit. Others mm. chose to file a lawsuit and enter into early settlement that included a private, uh, you know, arbitration or mediation agreement. and Something where they can't later disclose what they know. Something that they can't disclose, something that uh, the company can't talk about. And we saw that come up a lot in this Me Too era where there were prior complaints against a man, but those complaints were swept under the rug you know, he wasn't reprimanded for them and they weren't made public. So we've seen that happen. And and that's a personal choice. So I I don't say, and even, you know, women consult me in my law practice, every woman is different. Some people coming public, making yourself vulnerable in that way, uh, being attacked, because we know oftentimes when women do come uh, forward, it's gotten a little better, but it, you know, women were maligned. They were attacked. Their credibility was attacked. Uh, they were, you know, called promiscuous. People would dig into their backgrounds, try to find anything to make them out to be the villain, and that can be emotionally and psychologically devastating. So, going through that process, you know, everybody has to decide if they have kind of the, the internal fortitude, I'll call it, you know, to to withstand that. Uh, and, and some will say yes and will be completely vulnerable and, you know, go on the media circuit, go on social media and talk about it very openly and very privately, I mean, very uh, publicly. But what we have seen in the Me Too movement is the power in numbers. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it just takes that one person to come forward and then you'll see others be empowered by that one person's testimony and then they start to share. So, you know, you mentioned these non-disclosure agreements and as a lawyer working on these cases, it sounds like this is something you have seen time and again. That has to be so frustrating for the part of you that's an activist and wants to see things change that people are able to sweep that under the rug. Do you think that's changing now that companies have a better sense of that's something that has to go if we want justice for frankly uh, the women in these situations as well as the men who have caused these problems? No. No, <laughs> no, it's Great. not changing. Uh, you know, this this country uh, likes to. Uh, there's a lot of performative things that happen. Mm-hmm. So you know, a big case happens in the media. There's you know, wall to wall coverage for a day, two, maybe three days, uh, and then things have a way of you know settling down and going back to normal. Yeah. Uh, and so quite honestly, no, there hasn't been a huge shift in the way these cases are handled in the workplace. And still, African-American women, women of color are disproportionately impacted by sexual harassment in the workplace and are least likely to speak up because we are uh, over-indexed in low-wage jobs. 
and we are often the sole breadwinner of our families. So the risk of speaking up is too great. It could, you know, mean losing that job means losing housing, transportation, you know, being able to buy food, take care of, you know, your family, et cetera. So oftentimes you don't see those women uh, coming forward. And if you think about a lot of the high profile cases, uh, Gretchen Carlson, these are often very high profile well-to-do, mm-hmm. uh, women who have a lot of resources, a lot of support, and not that anyone likes losing a job, but they are typically sure. better suited, you know. They have a microphone. They have they, a microphone. They so, have a little more control over their yes. story. So Gretchen, you know, loses one job at, at Fox, and then she's you know, can travel the country and give speeches, and they have other ways. So that's not a bad thing, but that's just the reality of, of oftentimes who you see, you know, coming forward and telling their stories. I thought you had another interesting observation in this book in that you said when when Me Too really became such a big thing that in many ways men didn't fight back so much as they retreated. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, when you think about the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, that's a movement driven by women. You think about so many, like the voting you know, black women in particular are credited for the election of Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. So women, in particular, particularly black women, we stand up. You know, we're at the forefront front of so many of these causes. But when the Me Too movement happened, we didn't see men coming forth, talking about how important it was to make these major structural changes and to support women and, and so I know some women where their reaction to that is they want to say, hey, you know, forget those guys. Like, we need to move forward without them. You take a much different tack in your book. You say that we need to find a way to make them partners in women's success and in stopping some of these injustices that affect women. How do we even go about doing that? Well, I would say forget them, too. But remember my math problem, right? So, <laughs> right. I mean, the reality is we can say forget them, but they still control. I think I've read something in the New York Times, like, you know, white men, like, control 92% of everything that happens in this country. So, you know, you can dismiss them if you want, but it's Senator Joe Manchin who's going to make the final decision about whether we get that paid family medical leave or not. So, yeah, I I talk a lot about partnerships, and I distinguish that between allies. So we saw, again, with Black Lives Matter after George Floyd was murdered, you know, companies were all, you know, they they were buying how to be anti-racist books, they were buying books by black authors, books about racism. There was this day, you know, on Instagram where everybody had to post a black square. We saw these press releases, all of this. We stand with, you know, Black Lives Matter. We stand with George Floyd's family, blah, 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 blah. And all that was great. Like over $50 billion was pledged by corporations to social justice organizations. But that's a way in many cases just to check the box. Mm-hmm. You know, we pledge the money. We, we posted the black square, we issued the press release. And then what you started to hear were, were people inside these companies saying, well, wait a minute, that's great that you gave $5 million to the African American Museum in DC, but we got a problem right here in our own workplace mm-hmm. where African Americans feel like this environment is hostile, where they don't feel like they can, um, you know, they're not getting the promotions, they're not getting the support. And there's a, a recent study out that says, Black women in particular feel the most undervalued and undersupported in the workplace. Mm. So this is a very real problem. Um, How do you go about getting then that true partnership from men, from getting them to be the partner, not just the ally trying to look good? 
Yeah, uh, you got to have these conversations, right? Mm-hmm. It, it starts with you can't fix a problem that you don't acknowledge. And then when I talk to groups, you know, corporate groups, I try to personalize it for men. I ask them to think about their daughters. Mm-hmm. Think about your daughter who you love, your your baby girl who you are so proud of when she, you know, gets on the cheerleading team, when she gets accepted into college, when she, you know, all these wonderful things happen to her. Do you really want your daughter to walk into a workplace that's hostile to women? Do you want your daughter to, to be, you know, sitting next to a guy that she trains and that guy gets a promotion and she gets passed over? So when you get guys thinking about, you know, that this is going to impact them and, and someone they really love, like their precious little babies, uh, I, I start to see like a twinkle in their eye. You know, start to see things start to move and, and they start to, I think, understand it and receive it in a different way. You had um, some interesting analysis in your book of when to clap back and when not to clap back. And I want to read here um, an email that you got that kind of went viral a little bit because of how you handled it. I'm sure you know what email I'm I'm about to read here. Um, This came in when you had gone on CNN and you were talking about the Me Too movement. Uh, This email says, Dear Ms. Martin, I would respectfully suggest that your attire for these interviews, especially on this topic, should be more modest. This morning on CNN, you had on a top that revealed substantial cleavage, which some, (laughs) and you can tell this this email writer, some, not me, who would wrongly discount your message, would say serves to further objectify women. So here's an email coming in from someone going, some people might say this about your outfit. How did you respond to this email? So first of all, think about this. This is some anonymous person that doesn't know me from Mary, Jane, Joseph, anyone. They had to take the time to Google me, find out like how to get in touch with me. And this is always surprising to me, particularly people that want to criticize you, attack you. That like you're sitting at home with nothing better to do in your life than to Google me, find my email address and write me. And that's a short email. I mean, some of them are like books on tape, really lengthy emails. Uh, You know, I I, I responded to that uh, person who was attacking me and and, and trying to shame me, which happens a lot to women. Uh, Never has a man, you know been told, wow, you know, that shirt button is a little too low. You need to button up that shirt. It's just racy. Uh, yes. Oh, oh, you know, that chest that you were revealing in that interview. But, but the, the irony was I was talking about the Me Too movement yeah. and women being shamed and women being attacked. And in doing that, here I was being shamed for a top. And, you know, I've been working on TV for many, many years. And trust me, you're not going to find me on TV doing anything other than being my authentically, you know, professional self. And how much skin I I choose to to show is is between me and my skin. So So (laughs) you didn't. So you didn't just send a, a personal response. You also, you ended up writing an essay about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, I took advantage of yeah. it. It was an opportunity to like, you know, <laughs> turn everything into a teachable moment. So yeah, I wrote an article and published it uh, in CNN, on CNN.com. And, you know, it, that's the article that went viral. It's to talk about just yeah. what women experience. And that's just one of many, many examples of women uh, from the hair, the color of your hair, the texture of your hair, 
we have the Crown Act, which was enacted in California first by a senator that worked really closely with Holly Mitchell. Uh, and it's an act. We needed a whole law to prevent companies from discriminating against women of color for wearing natural hairstyles. So literally, before the Crown Act was enacted, you could be disciplined for wearing cornrows, twists, braids, natural hairstyles. I mean, this obsession with women's appearances, I mean, you it's point out crazy. how dumb it is. You also point out how expensive it is. Well, yeah, that's the other lie. We're told that, you know, beauty doesn't matter, that it's our merit, it's our expertise, it's what we bring to the workplace. But there are all these studies that show just the opposite, studies that show, you know, that your skin tone, that women who are, particularly if you're black, if you're lighter skin tone, your salary is higher than women who are darker skin tone, your weight, women who weigh less. So there are these Eurocentric standards of beauty that, uh, you know, have been imposed on women and, and we're on this constant treadmill trying to keep up. And, and I talk about, uh, you know, these beauty trends in the 70s and the 80s, you know, it was the waif look. So women literally were taking skin, uh, you know, fat out of their cheeks and, and trying to, you know, out of their rib cage to get super skinny. And then, you know, come here comes the Kardashians and Cardi B and, and you know, Beyonce and other pop you know, culture figures. And now women are literally taking fat out of their breasts and shooting it in their butts and these Brazilian butt lifts, these very dangerous surgeries, because now, you know, it, it's not in to be thin. Now it's in to be voluptuous. And, you know, you have to have it in the right place. It's got to be in your butt, your thighs, you know, women places just that win. women have had yeah. weight all our lives, you know, but now all of a sudden it's popular and women are on this constant treadmill keeping up with these beauty trends. Yeah. I mean, so what's the solution there? I mean, can we all just get say, off? Get off. So I, I'm not going to wear off. <laughs> so yeah, get off. Like hair for me now is like an accessory. So this is my hair today. If you saw me on CNN this morning, I had different hair. If you see me tomorrow on CNN, it's <laughs> going to be different again. So just, you know, do you? Do yes. You. Yeah. We're listening this hour to my conversation with author and lawyer Ariva Martin, recorded this past November before a live audience. We'll get back to the discussion after a short break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. This hour, we're listening to my conversation with St. Louis native Ariva Martin. She's talking to us about her new book, Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. In the book, she describes her journey to finding herself in new ways over the past couple years. She writes about having an absolutely terrific 2018 with things firing on all cylinders. Here's Ariva on why 2018 was such a banner year. I had my book, Make It Rain, came out in 2018. I started this uh, talk show called Face the Truth. I was hosting uh, on the CBS. And just my career, things were going really great. The nonprofit that I work in, uh, special, well, that I started, Special News Network, we were you know, doing really well financially. We were moving towards opening this incredible center, autism center. Uh, so things were going well. And then but life. life. <laughs> <laughs> My show got canceled. Uh, our project got held up. Still isn't our project still isn't completed yet. But stuff happens, and yeah. I, you know, I, I wrote about, I, I think I, I shared that my 2018 was so great, I had these super, super ambitious goals for 2019. So all the stuff I did in 2018, I was going to do that on steroids in 2019. 
And I looked back when at the end of 2019 and looked at that list because I'm a list person. I'm a write it down person. And I hadn't accomplished one of those goals. I was like, nope, not that. No, not that. <laughs> so I got, I was like, okay, 2019, didn't do any of that. So I said, okay, maybe these weren't one-year goals. Yeah. Maybe these were two or three-year goals. <laughs> so maybe I would extend these so it didn't feel like failure. It just felt like I needed an extension. I needed more time. But this is the part that kind of breaks my heart the most, is I imagine as you're doing that sort of year-end tally at 20, in 2019 that you're saying, okay, next year. Next year's going to be my year. 2020. You're going into 2020. Guns blazing, like ready to take things. And 2020 was such a reset. Oh. For God, all of for us. Everybody. I mean, so many things were so out of all of our control. And so when you're sort of going into this and like, you know, this is the year I'm going to like, you know, make everything happen that I've always wanted to happen. And then the whole world comes to a screeching halt. How do you even begin to deal with that? Well, it started with a lot of wine and potato chips. To be <laughs> that became my Netflix diet. I was binging on everything from the Tiger King to the Queen of the South to, you know, Ozark, all the like big popular Netflix specials. Uh, and then, you know, I said, OK, this is going to be a little longer because mm -hmm. in L.A. they shut things down. Initially, it was going to be two weeks then it was going to be four weeks. So I thought I could, you know, potato chip and wine for a couple of weeks. Then I'd get back to the gym. Uh, and then as I realized, no, this is going to be a while. And maybe my potato chip and wine diet should. <laughs> got to desist yeah. that. Yeah. yeah I got to end the potato chip and wine diet. So I think we all had to make the adjustment that this is going to be here a lot longer than we expected. Uh, and we've just got to figure out a way to be productive despite the pandemic. And you feel that there is some good that has come out of oh, this. God, I mean, no yeah. disrespect to any of the tragedy yeah, that people have yeah. suffered, but that there's some lessons that, that you took from this time. Yeah, definitely. Let's start with the 700,000 people that have lost their lives. Yeah. I've interviewed on my show tons of people who've lost, you know, mothers and fathers and uh, families even who have had multiple people die of COVID. So never wish this on anyone. So I, I don't want to, you know, trivialize the pandemic because it's been very serious. But it, it has caused us to have this shift in the workplace. You know, everybody went home. And now you know, we saw this, this the great resignation, they're calling it. And people aren't going back to work in the same way that they did pre-pandemic. We see this shift where employees now have more power and they're saying to their employers, one, either I'm not coming back at all. I've had time. I've been able to, to reflect on what's important to me. And this job isn't. Uh, for a lot of people, they made that decision. And others are saying, I, I want to come back, but I want things to be different. And employers are having to yield to those demands. They're having to recognize. You know, for years, women fought to have flex time, mm -hmm. to be able to work from home, to be able to have a flexible schedule. And we met. we were met with so much resistance. But the pandemic showed the world that, we can all work from home. I mean, companies made so much money. So many companies made just billions and billions of more money than they ordinarily would. People were more productive. And so a lot of folks are saying, I'll go back, but I want different terms. Mm -hmm. Higher pay, more benefits, and a less hostile work environment. And so almost maybe this idea that there almost needs to be um, you know, terrible things are going to happen in life no matter what, but some of these terrible things hit home the things that are necessary to get to that awakening. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, we, we always want to try to find a silver lining in things. I think that's by nature, you know, that, that keeps us hopeful. 
And that's one of the things. And, and obviously the need to focus more on public health and what public health looks like, how to be prepared for a pandemic. So uh, I think there's some lessons that we're all learning from it. There was also another awakening that I think happened in this country during this time. And, and I think for St. Louis, this was a reminder of an awakening that St. Louis began to have back in 2014. And this was what happened with the death of George Floyd. And I know that you were very active um, around the time of Ferguson and have continued to stay active on this topic. But it feels like a lot of people really took their eye off of that issue for a long time. And this forced people to get back into it. Do you think that this is going to make change in a way that people were hoping would happen in 2014, and then in many places things just petered out. Sarah, I have to say no again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I would say no and yes. Okay, so here's the no and the yes. We definitely saw people having to grapple with these big thorny issues around race, structural racism, systemic racism, White people were asking their black friends, you know, what do I do to be an ally? Help me. Under I'm sorry. I didn't understand. I, you know, I have a better understanding. You know, people wanted reading lists. They, they were attending lectures. Big companies were bringing in all of these diversity specialists. Uh, so there was this, this, this kind of busyness that was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we're, you know, there's a the backlash from that. You know, we, we saw what happened in the Virginia election. We see what's happening around voting rights. We see what's happening with the Texas abortion laws. And in many ways, that's the response. So in this country, we tend to make, you know, a little progress. And then there's backlash and there's regression. So I, I think the jury is still out on what real change might look like. You know, Minneapolis, I'll give you an example, uh, where George Floyd was murdered, you know, May 25th, uh, 2020. Uh, their city council came out initially and said they were going to reimagine their police department. They were going to dismantle it in its, its present form, create a public safety department where things like mental health and routine traffic stops were, would be handled by people other than the police. At first, a lot of support for that. That was on the ballot yeah. on Tuesday. And that and went it, down. It went, it just, it went down in flames. Yeah. And so the status quo in Minneapolis, the, you know, the epicenter of the conversation around police, policing brutality, uh, voters rejected it. Yeah. So that actually brings me to a, a great quote from your book. You write, awakening is not about rising one morning and staying awake. It's about rising up every single day. And I appreciate that. I now have that on a post-it because I'm like, <laughs> you got to get up every single day. And yet I wonder for people in this room, maybe especially for black women in this room, how do you keep getting up when you're tired? Yeah, no, you know, we often say we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, but we are from such a rich history of resilient people, which is why we are here. And we stand on the shoulders of those people and we honor those ancestors by getting up every day mm -hmm. and recognizing that we may not win the battle, but, you know, we are still in it to win the war. So uh, it's challenging, you know surrounding yourself with positive people, having a why, whether that's your family or, you know, or some cause that you're passionate about makes that a lot easier. But we know historically we're never going to stop getting up. So what would you say to somebody who's listening to this today and they're still grappling with their awakening? 
they're grappling whether they're ready to take this step and start thinking about the world the way you think about it. What's the message you'd want to leave with them? First of all, you don't have to think about the world the way I want to. <laughs> and I want you to have your own awakening moment uh, and start small. You know, everybody is not going to get to the same place at the same time. That's not what, you know, awakening is about. But it, it's about trying to empower you where you are uh, and helping you whatever it is that has been holding you back. If, if you can just, you know, make the smallest adjustment to the way you think about the world, the way you think about yourself, then to me, I've been successful. You know, you've had an awakening experience. Uh, maybe for you, it's just that quote that now is on your post-it that has become your affirmation. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel good. and <laughs> It makes me feel like, okay, that's what I wanted. Well, so you heard it right there. You just got to find one thing. Yes. <laughs> Do it for a Reba. Start. <laughs> <laughs> so I have some questions from the audience. I got to ask my questions. I feel like now it's your turn. I'm going to start with a really good one from Erica. Erica writes, I have been called aggressive because I speak my mind. How do you handle men who can't handle an outspoken woman? Yeah, uh, that that happens. And then <laughs> that if, happens. Yes. <laughs> so and if you are a black woman, that aggressive can turn into, uh, you know, loud, angry black woman. You know, that that racist trope that we are often referred that often gets assigned to us uh, that when we do speak our mind, when we do speak up, then there's something wrong with us. And, and I think, Erica, people have not heard enough from assertive women like you. And in this moment, as more of us are finding our voices and starting to use our voices, it's going to take time. We've got to be patient with uh, our other sex, <laughs> the men, uh, because a lot of them aren't accustomed to dealing with, whether it's professionally or personally, with assertive women. But you don't stop speaking your mind. You don't shrink to make someone else feel comfortable. So here's a question that I think is, is kind of the flip side almost um, here. And this is from Kim. Uh, she writes, women are often not supportive of other women and are often very critical of other women. And so, you know, there's the problem of men can't deal with women being aggressive. Sometimes women are out there striking each other down. Kim wants to know your thoughts on why. And then what could be the solution to this? Yeah, that's a really big question. Uh, and a lot of it's learned behavior. So a lot of how we treat people in the world is how we've been taught to treat people in the world. And the people that teach us, you know, there's a saying that hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the lessons that we're learning about how we treat people are coming from people who've been hurt themselves and they are hurting other people. So first of all, you know, I'm all about recognition, you know, recognizing that that is the reality. Uh, and then I also am a firm believer in not confronting people, but talking to people, bringing mm -hmm. them into that awareness. Because oftentimes people will say, I didn't know that. I have a friend and a friend of mine in Los Angeles, and, and she had a tendency to make little comments about things that I found to be undermining. But she's a good friend. So I just, I said, I wondered if she knows 
that what she is saying is hurtful to me. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided to have a conversation with her about it to say, I don't think you are trying to do this because we are really good friends. We do a lot together. We support each other. But when you say these things, this is the impact that it has on me. So sometimes it's just letting someone know that what they are doing is having that impact. And did that work when you had that conversation? Yes. And we turned it into a joke. And so now, you know, it wasn't like a hundred percent change overnight. And if she'll say something, I'll say, remember we had that conversation. Mm. And she's like, okay, okay. So yes. Now yeah. that may offend someone else. Not to say again, you know, all, none of these solutions are going to work a hundred percent of the time in every situation, but uh, a part of finding our voices is being able to, to say to people, honestly, I'm not comfortable with how you're handling this. Or, or you said some things that made me a little uncomfortable. Here's a question from Trudy. Um, She writes, I am a first-year associate at a big corporate firm, (laughs) something I I think you can identify with. Congratulations, (laughs) Trudy. What is your biggest piece of advice for navigating the competing mindsets of dealing with sexist micro-slash-macro aggressions, calling it out versus holding your tongue at work, especially how to react in the moment? That's so hard. Yeah, it is, because in the moment, sometimes you could say something that might literally get you escorted out the door with security, right? (laughs) So if you really said what you were thinking you you may not survive it's emotional intelligence it's figuring out uh it definitely though is not being a doormat and i think those days you know for women we were taught and told to not say anything to let it go uh you know to he didn't mean it and and i give an example in the book with uh my brother uh, one of my brothers and i have this company together and i started the company i'm the ceo of the company he works for me And we were being mentored by this older white guy and on Zoom, these mentoring meetings. And the guy, the the mentor, would never, ever address me. He would never call my name. He would never ask my opinion. But throughout these mentor sessions, he would call my brother's name. I mean, no fewer than 10 times during the call. Direct every comment to him. If he said something, oh, that's a great idea. He would acknowledge it. He would praise it. So one day I told my brother, I said, do you notice that that guy never, ever acknowledges me? He has made me completely invisible. And my brother did what a lot of men do. He says, you're imagining that. <laughs> he, that man ain't thinking about you. That, you you're just <laughs> making that up. He didn't call my name. And I, s- I said to my brother, my brother's name is Rodney. I said, Rodney. First of all, I'm not crazy, so (laughs) stop with the gaslighting. I know when I'm being ignored. I know when I'm being marginalized, and he's doing that. I said, I want you to do me a favor. Next time we're in a meeting, just make a mental note of how many times he uses your name and how many times he will not and does not use my name. So after the call, and it happened again, he called Rodney's name his usual 10 times, praised him for everything. And even to the point now, it's making Rodney uncomfortable because now he's conscious of it. So he started saying things like, well, you know, Ariva started the company. So he's trying to inject in there, like, you know, Ariva's the CEO. And didn't matter to the guy. So even if Rodney wasn't taking those cues. No, this guy was determined that I just did not exist. And so I had to make a choice, you know, like Trudy in those situations. Do you say something Do you not say something? So I ended the relationship. I said, I'm not getting on a call with him anymore. You can't mentor me if you don't respect me enough to even see me. So you you can't give me any advice. There's no advice that I want to receive from you. So I told Rodney, I said, we're going to terminate the relationship with him because he does not even respect 
you know, me as a, a human being, as a living being that's even participating in the cause. So you could have, I could have said something to him. I could have said, hello, hey, you know, I'm here too. Uh, and as you become more uh, mature in your career, in your position, you'll figure out what's the best way to handle those situations. Sometimes it's to terminate the relationship. Sometimes it's to say something openly to that person. Uh, but I, I think the, the thing you want to do is acknowledge it and don't allow yourself to think that there's something wrong with you or that you've done something to merit that kind of behavior. I think it's interesting you you pulled your brother in not just because he needed to see this for himself but also it was it was good to have a witness. Yeah. And I wonder if that's, you know, for a young woman at a, at a law firm where I imagine probably very few people look like her if there's, you know, find your allies and and find ways to find you know, just confirm you're not crazy. <laughs> and you know, find those mentors and this you're not the first person that this has happened to. The fact that this is happening to you means that this is probably systemic to that organization. And you definitely want to find those people that have navigated those, you know, those waters before and find out how they did it. How were they successful in that environment? Because each environment is different. You know, you may work in an environment where, you know, a woman may tell you, you need to say something to him to set the record straight right now. You know, it just may be that that's the best thing to do. That was St. Louis native, lawyer, and author Areva Martin. She joined me before a live audience in November to discuss her new book. It's called Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.